when we look at the conditions that we have here for uh, practicing awareness, and you can see the effect of those conditions in the course of six days has really resulted in there being some noticeable um, uh, increase in the continuity of awareness and more understanding of your own mind, your own heart-mind, and the understanding of practice. But it's not, it's not magical. It's because of conditions. So what are the conditions here that make it so supportive <coughs> of uh, practicing and seeing and understanding for yourself the benefit of practice and of understanding your own mind? One is being secluded from our usual uh, responsibilities, obligations, distractions, activities, because it gives us uh, an opportunity to have a more collected mind. The mind is not being pulled in so many different directions. <clears throat> Secondly is the sole input into your mind while you're here is Dharma. Dharma encouragement, information, inspiration, advice, techniques, and having your questions answered. And you just, you're not, there isn't uh, other things competing for your attention. And so when your mind wanders, it's more likely to wander to, well, I mean, it has its, you know, we have our personal trips, but it wanders to, yeah, how am I supposed to do this? And I wonder what he meant by that. And, you know, it kind of stays centered around Dharma, Dharma practice, awareness, understanding. And then the regularity of the schedule. You know, having regular times when we sit together, uh, when we discuss the Dharma together, listen to talks, and then uh, finally having, not finally, but in addition, having others around us who are practicing mindfulness and awareness really supports and reminds us to also be aware. So we may forget and go stomping out of the hall or stomping out of the dining room and then you see others with their effort to be aware and it just reminds you, uh, oh, to just be aware. So, let's see. And then not talking helps. Uh, uh, let's face the big one here. Uh, yeah, right. uh, not having, uh, you know, the opportunity to pr- to share your proliferating papancha mind. <laughs> I mean, you know, just to put it politely. Uh, so, when you look at when you look at all of those supports and those conditions that were we used here, of course. There's going to be more continuity, there's going to be more understanding, there's going to be more interest. And right about now in the retreat, your faith in the Dharma and practice is at its all-time high. It's like, you know, it's, it's, you, you feel it, and you're acting on it, and your, your aspiration is maybe clearest. Even though it's, it's challenging, I know, as I'm not saying that there's no doubt, and there's no hesitation, but... To get supported in being in a situation like this. So when we leave here and these conditions dissolve, then you can be sure the support and the conditions for continuity of awareness and understanding is going to dissolve with it. So what can we do in our life that will set 
the conditions in place to support greater awareness. Well, I'm not saying, I mean, none of us want to live a lifestyle of retreat. That's not what we want. But we want the benefits of the continuity of awareness. So really what we're looking for is how are we going to get the, the greater continuity of awareness in our daily life? And well, if we can build in a little bit of these supports, whether it's a regular sitting practice or a regular community practice or a, a time of day when you listen to Dharma or read Dharma and or regular contact with other Dharma-minded uh, folks, regular input from guidance or instruction, uh, whether it's reading or tapes or videos or whatever, or in person, uh, all of these would support. But let's face it, the, the, the main activity of our life outside of retreat is talking. We talk a lot. We listen a lot. We read a lot. We hear a lot. And that's where we need to bring a lot of effort or reminders uh, to be aware. Because so much of our, you know, every, as I, as I acknowledged during the, you know, when you get a catalog and you look through the catalog, a little piece of your attention, a little piece of your mind sticks on every, everything you look at as yes, no, or maybe. And after a few dozen or a hundred or two uh, considerations, your mind is very weak. You've lost your mind in the catalog. And it's just hanging, it's, just, it's stuck on pages, it's stuck on uh, objects. And the same thing happens in our life. Every time we see, hear, listen, whatever, a little piece of our mind goes and stays with that newscast and that opinion and that view and that fear and that enticement and that you know invitation to participate somehow. And uh, you know, then the mind gets very weak. You know, the mind stays strong when we stay aware of our mind. Or awareness stays strong when we stay aware of our mind. That's what keeps it strong. And when we disperse our mind into content, then we lose our mind and we lose our awareness. So just making those activities of reading, listening, speaking, particularly, uh, practices, um, not necessarily formal practices, but something that you really remind yourself need to pay attention here. need to really remember to check my attitude of mind, not to lose my mind in this conversation, not to read the news just to, just to have your outrage confirmed. You know, you have, to, you have to watch that because every time you read a news article and it confirms your already formed views and opinions, you just lose a little bit of your center, you lose a little bit of your self-awareness. So when you begin to see this, that wow, that's how by the that's how by the end of the day we're exhausted because we've lost our mind, we've given it away. It's been it's been hijacked by so many unfinished conversations, views and opinions, things that really don't um, aren't aren't germane to our own well-being at the time. 
Yeah, I'm not saying you have to be a news hermit or anything like that, but I'm just saying we need to watch our mind when we consume uh, news uh, <coughs> and whatever else is your your particular distraction. <coughs> so, bringing awareness to speaking and listening is essential. And Utejaniya talks about, you know, when you're when you're in a conversation or listening to someone, only give that conversation or that person 50% of your attention. You know, in our culture, it's like, if you're not paying 100% attention, then it's kind of considered being disrespectful. But actually, if you're not paying attention to your own mind, that's being disrespectful. So he says, only give the conversation or give the other person the content of the conversation, 50% of your attention, and keep the other 50% watching your own mind. Because it's, it's commenting. It's, even as you listen to me now, your mind is saying, yeah, but, and really? Well, that's a good idea. And thinking of questions that you want to ask and not really watching your mind do that. So being aware that that's what your mind is doing will prevent you from losing your mind in the, in the center of the room somewhere. So... That takes practice to to be willing to keep an eye on your own mind, you know, when you're having conversations or listening to the news or reading the news. Keep an eye on your own mind. And then um, Yeah, the other thing that I mean, because we have such limited opportunities for distraction here, um, there's some naturally occurring calming of the mind and the body. And to take that time or to make that time for yourself in your life and, and I'm not I'm not imagining that any of you have, you know, nice, serene, quiet lives that isn't that aren't full and busy. Most of us do. So but still within that, finding some time each day to be alone. I mean, really be alone. Whether it's alone in your head or alone in your body um, to really be able to spend time with your own mind not not engaged with other minds uh, nature is a great help being out in nature uh, if possible is a great help for uh, letting the mind settle a little bit practicing with a group weekly or monthly or whatever is helpful um, <clears throat> there's probably lots more but those are the first thoughts and topics that come to my mind as to how to understand uh, awareness in life outside of retreat or how to understand practicing uh, awareness uh, outside of retreat got it? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and along the lines of talking in one of the recent daily Tejanitas, uh, he said that Shui Yumin would tap his shoulder while he was talking to you so that he would remind himself to be mindful. And Tejanitas said that he would tap his fingers together when he was in business talking to somebody just to remind himself to be mindful. Yeah, I, thank you, Rome. 
By the way, Utej, uh, one of our students has uh, sends out a daily Utejania reminder. If you want to get on the list, there's information and all the reasons. I'll make it available. There'll be information available on the board of how to do that if you wish to get a daily reminder in your mailbox. That's, it's a good reminder, actually. Every morning you get this little Utejania blurb and kind of set your mind thinking about that for the day. But you're right. I mean, that's that's what he said about Shui Yumin is he used to just put a hand here and just tap his shoulder just to remind himself he's here. He's here. He's not lost in the conversation. He's not elsewhere. He's just right here. And then, as you said, Utejaniya used to just tap his fingers together. When he was in business, he had a, he had a shop in a mall, and a, a Burmese mall, a shop in a mall, uh, and he used to practice there. I think one of the I think one of the, the biggest obstacles for developing awareness in outside retreats is we don't think it's possible. Mm. You know, we think my life's too busy, it's too full, I got too much on my mind, I, I don't have time to, to to practice. But wherever you go there's your mind and you can't go anywhere without mm. your mind. So you know, getting getting familiar with asking the question What's my attitude of mind? You can ask that anywhere, in any conversation, in any activity. What's my attitude of mind? What's my attitude of mind? And that'll help you reestablish a connection with awareness. Other challenges? And yeah. Uh, this is a question around uh, planning of creative projects. I know that you've recently been working on constructing a third dwelling at the Dharma Sanctuary. And that's gone from building the first one to building the second one to now building the third one, which involves lots of planning and visioning and aspiration and selection and comparison and pricing, etc. etc. I have a, a project of a smaller nature that involves similar sorts of decisions. And off retreat, it had started to turn into obsessive thinking. It was a really uh, deep walk and easy to fall into. Here it's been easier to keep it at bay sort of by saying, not now, mm-hmm. or something along those lines, with, with some moderately dramatic exceptions. Um, but I'm wondering how you approach your building project. You know, and, and in my project, I'm, I'm aware of it. The happiness it brings is not under my control. It may not be what I expect, or it could be more. Um, it, it, you know, there's disappointment built into it right away. I'm aware of that. Um, all, all the characteristics. Mm. But how do I align that with a higher aspiration? Because I think your project is has been building something that's more than just the barest utilitarian you know, structure you wouldn't house your dog in, like you mentioned the midwife was in. Um, and so, you know, aligning your um, intention with that without getting into papancha and obsessive thinking and sinking into that. Well, I, you know, to put it in a nutshell, you know, planning the future is rampant proliferation of thought. You know, and papancha, and what, what what I want, and what I can get, and how to do it, and all the endless details that 
it requires. We do this in life. I think the important thing is to recognize how much is necessary and how much is excess. And then, not that you can control it, but there are times when you can say, as you did, oh, not now. I don't have to be thinking about that now. Uh, And it's not just because you're in retreat, but sometimes you just have to prioritize and just say, look, I've got time today to think of this, this, and this, but not this, this, and this. And I think, for me, what I notice is that when it comes time to prioritize my time, if I don't sit down in the morning and take some time to just let things settle, I don't prioritize very well. I prioritize carelessly, maybe out of just desire rather than need. So even though it takes time to just sit down, let your mind settle, just do a formal practice, it actually saves time because I prioritize things more skillfully and I do things more efficiently. And so I actually have the feeling of more time, less rushing, less feeling obsessed and more presence of mind with what I do do. That being said, you know, there is, you know, some of us, I suppose, are more, uh, more neurotic about all the possible contingencies that might interfere with, you know, our plans, and we solve problems long before they ever exist. And that, that's kind of a personality thing. I remember working with a neighbor on a project and he was forever imagining, what if this happens? And then, let's figure out what we're going to do if this happens. And I would say, it hasn't happened. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's unlikely to happen, actually. It's just, let's just wait and see if it does happen. Then we'll, you know. And so I think that there's, there's part of that that, you know, I was always confident that we'd figure out what we do. And I think he was more scheming, strategizing, trying to cover all the bases so he didn't have to feel anxious. But I didn't have that same thing. I felt more confident that when the situation rose, we'll deal with it. Different people have different ways of approaching that thing. I think just to know your own to know your own tripwires is probably important. You know, and if you see that you're a little obsessive or neurotic about things more than need to be, then that's a practice. That's something to practice. What I'm noticing is that the first project leads to the second project in the mind, and then the third project already begins. So there's that sort of proliferation going on. Um, you know, if you set the parameters beforehand, it's going to be exactly this and no more. But that's kind of tightly controlling the outcome. In my you know, progress is our most important product. We have to keep making. Yeah, things have a tendency to proliferate. You know, I think that's that's a good thing to know. And not now is one thing, but enough is enough is another good reminder. And you know, we you know when we're good at something, we want to do it more. Or even if we're not good at something, we can still get on that more, more, more. And I think it takes um, awareness to recognize that more of anything is more of everything. You know, so if you want to if you want to simplify your life, you actually have to simplify your life. You can't accumulate more and do more in the hopes of it being simpler. 
<laughs> we do, you know. <laughs> if I could just do this, this, and this, then my life would really be simpler. <laughs> no, that doesn't, that doesn't work that way. But, you know, yeah, I, I, I've seen, you know, um, my project, you know, on Maui. Yeah, actually, it has shrunk in scope over the 20 years I've been working on it. It's like, as it comes into fruition, I've kind of shrunk it to minimal more than... But then again, I have a sense of aesthetics that's expensive. <laughs> so, unfortunately, it's shrunk in size, but it's still the same cost. <laughs> so, uh, but that's, that's just my predilection, and others will have your own predilection, whether you want more or better or whatever, but uh, I think knowing your own tendencies is really important, you know, because who's going to put the brakes on you except you yourself, or your finances, or your partner, or your husband, or the bank, or somebody. So, knowing your own, knowing your own tendencies Really important. Not always good news, though. Not always what? Good news. <laughs> Rarely good news. <laughs> or as they say, self-knowledge is not always good news. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, you know, you mentioned the, the daily outrage, which I will say the daily rotation is a good balance to that. <laughs> but... Uh, Five years ago, when, when I first uh, was on a retreat with you, you were talking about inputs, you know, watching what we put in through our minds and bodies. And I went home and I chose to go on a news fast for four years. And it was the best thing I ever did. And I don't know why, but I chose to come out of it for this last political season. Wrong, wrong, wrong. And it was, I didn't miss a thing. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't miss a thing. It's like, but I was a lot less reactive. So I think that, you know, something you mentioned is just, that's, that's a good thing to do. We who are in the field of awareness and practice and trying to wake up to our life, if you want to really wake up, is take a fast. Whether it's a chocolate fast or a news fast or a something fast, just take a period of time. Not because it's, you know, more holy or more whatever. It's just so that you find out about your own mind. So that you really see more of what your mind is doing. You know, so to, to do a news fast or to do a coffee fast or, you know, not just a food thing, but a behavior fast of some sort. Yeah, it's really, 
it's informative. I remember when I was in, in, in the monastery, there was a period of time after, you know, after about a year and a half, I had a lot of momentum in practice, and I was just looking for things to really challenge my mindfulness, just challenge my idea of what's possible. And I would try anything, you know, to, to just see what it would provoke in the mind. That was, that was in a monastery, it's a pretty safe place, but I think that we can do it also here, just take voluntarily, creatively taking on, um, you know, a, a kind of practice, a formal practice, just to, just to see the reaction in the mind. Yeah. I'm, I'm worried about a, a kind of a collision or an easy mix between some of the understandings that are starting to take hold here and actually some counseling I'm doing when I get in that other place. Um, the idea that um, the mind and body have objects that are in nature. Our, our, our nature. Yes, yeah. that are not mine or me. Yeah. This hot is hot. Anger is anger. It's not I am hot, I am angry. Mm-hmm. It's really quite freeing, actually. And I've begun to see whatever yeah. about that. I, in a few days, I'll have a counseling session with my partner where we're working to deepen our connection and be more intimate and a lot of it has to do with stuff. Owning your owning your feelings. That you could predict. So <laughs> my homework has been to own and declare more clearly my feelings. I can only imagine if I try to honor the first commitment from the retreat and say um, uh, anger is rising. I'm going to met with an incredulous, you got to be kidding me, and then a whack across the <laughs> This is not quite... Not going to work. Getting there. <laughs> um, and so it's a, it's, a, it's a real inquiry. I mean, our relationship is good enough that you can find a way, but I'm feeling really, really kind of awkward and hesitant about it at the moment. Afraid to talk away my experience. Yeah. And afraid to not look like I'm honoring something else somewhere else. Yeah. Which gets at all the conceits yeah. and cravings that I have. It's yeah. like yeah. a really bad experiment, perfectly set up. <clears throat> you know, I think that you know the the, the dilemma that you uh, reveal is common. In that, you know, each of us comes to practice. We have an interior life. We listen to the Dharma. Things fall into place. We get glimpses of like, yeah. Yeah, okay. And how to bring that into the world in our relationship with others without just setting up an adversarial or like, where are you coming from type of uh, response. And I think one understanding that's really helpful but not easy is to understand that there is this empirical, experiential reality of our own in our own awareness. And there is this consensual, shared reality that we have with <clears throat> others and everyone in, that we're in relationship with. And it's not to say that the two don't cross paths, but that 
the language, the understandings, and whatnot of your awareness can't, the, the understanding and experience of your awareness can inform your, you know, the consensual, conventional world of relationships. But um, it's really not so indicated to <laughs> try to teach your partner what you've learned from your own experience. So I would say let the let let your let your experience and your understanding inform how you relate to others. So that, you know, how you get in touch with yourself is through honesty, caring, sensitivity, acknowledgement, allowing, accepting. And the same has to be, or those qualities in relationship are essential. You know, it's not so much about dogma as it is about connecting. And in awareness, in awareness practice, you know, we are trying to understand things from uh, a different place than it's all about me and mine and I want and I need and, you know, a sense of entitlement or being victimized. And it's like, you know, that doesn't get you anywhere in, in, within yourself or in relationship. So it's like, oh, but we have a lot of that. So how to recognize that, let it go, and then you know, bring the same qualities to our relationships as we have with awareness. Mm. I'm terrible at it. I'm not saying I'm good at it, but I, I see that that's what's needed. So there's probably others that have better, more experience <coughs> than I at this, but I see it's possible. Well, I just wanted to say the way that I've worked with that is exactly what Utejaniya says, which is there's anger in the mind. It's visiting the mind. It's not you didn't do it, but you're responsible for it. So you'll have to deal with the anger. Yeah, you got to deal with it. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I think that's. I mean, I think that understanding of when the mind is not yours, but you have to deal with it, or you're responsible for it. It's like. And not just to blame the other person who seems to be the source of the source of it. You know, you know, when when you're angry, it's your anger. It's not somebody else's. It's yours. And I think owning it, owning it psychologically, emotionally, is one thing. But understanding it from a Dharma perspective is useful. Um, I was wondering if you could speak to dosage um, as far as retreat practice because I'm finding that two one week or maybe two week retreats a year is, is just the the sense of momentum gets not sustained and, and one month retreats at, at the minimum are not available for me resource wise um, but if you could speak about that. So the question is about how do we uh, support the awareness and when we have either limited time or resources for more retreat. Um, I think everyone has, you know, aspirations and they have to fit within our lifestyle and it's not always possible when we want 
But I think what's what's really important is to acknowledge your aspiration, so that if you aspire to do either more retreats or a longer retreat, or you want to do a, a month long or a three month or a six week or a month, whatever, you know, to nourish that, to nurture it, because right now the resources or the time might not be available to do it. But don't just kind of dismiss it as this, you know, never going to happen. It's dependent on conditions, a lot of which you don't control. And if you nourish it, nurture it, then when the conditions ripen, you've already got the, the momentum or you've already got the decision ready to be made to, to, to take advantage of the conditions. So, uh, yeah, I, I think that that's, I, mean, I, I, I see it, how it works in my life, you know so that I can't always do what I want when I first think of it. But if it's, a, if it's a worthy aspiration, or if it's a beneficial aspiration, then it sticks around, it, it, it stays there. And I see myself making <coughs> decisions and allocating resources to support that. And in time, hopefully, they, they come together, in a way, so that... Um, not to not to dismiss out of hand something that you can't do now just because of lack of time or resources. And the other thing, you know, frankly, is plan on this practice taking the rest of your life. Because <laughs> I mean, really, what are you going to do? Get done and then do what? <laughs> Hello, I mean, this is it. You know. But what I see for myself is that you know, as I've gone along and Admittedly, it's 45 years now, but as I've gone along, it's like more of my time, more of my energy, more of my resources, more of my thing ends up heading in this direction. And it has been a very gradual thing. It just didn't happen overnight, but over the course of many years. Yeah. As uh, somebody who's been sitting for 45 years, do you sleep less? I, lo- I love what you said about the, the, the male, you know, going to work, coming home, putting the cans up on the shelf, and, and then collapsing, because that's pretty much my life. If I, if I carve out time in the morning, then I can do a formal practice. I'd like to sleep less, but I also want to be healthy. Could you speak to sleep and meditation and how it, how it affects in your, how it's been in your life? Uh, the question is about sleep, and you know, the, the, the more the more you sleep, the less time you have to practice, or something like that. No, it's more like does does your does meditating change the way you sleep? Yeah. Does, oh, it, does yeah. it does it lessen your need for sleep? Because meditation here let you sleep for four hours on retreat one time, right? No, this is this is at a different monastery. Oh, okay. He he doesn't have that. This okay. is at the Mahasi Center. Okay. No, they let you sleep four hours. Well, I, I never. I mean, I, I I don't know what the I guess my genes are pretty on. I, I, I've never slept much. But, or I just, I, let me say, I have a lot of energy, physical, mental energy. Mm-hmm. And when I got to the monastery, I mean, I didn't, I mean, I was, I, was, I was a contractor building, you know, so that's hard work, and I used to sleep regular hours, whatever that was, and I can't remember. But when I went to the monastery, and that was to practice, I was on fire to practice. I had a tremendous, a tremendous aspiration and, energy. And so four hours was, I was going to do it 
come hell or high water, that, that, no problem. I'll just do it. Set my alarm and get up and do it. And for the first, you know, couple of weeks is not what I expected. But I got, you know, got into it and then got, got some momentum going. And then uh, one time, one time, I set my alarm for four hours. One time, for whatever reason, I set five hours. I either set it, the alarm at the wrong time, or I didn't hear it, or whatever, but I noticed that, oh, it's been five hours since I went to bed. Well, okay, just got up and practiced. That day, I went to Pandita every day, two o'clock, to report that, and I would walk in, I'd come to the door, walk in, walk across the floor from here to the door, do my bows, give my report, get it translated, get a report. So that day, I go to the door, push open the door, and from over there where he sits, I'm standing there, he says, how many hours did you sleep last night? <laughs> and I go, I wanted to say, oh, I only sleep four. But I said, well, last night I slept five. He says, please try harder. End of interview. <laughs> okay, so, just, just to let you know, when you're working with somebody like that, what have you got to hide? <laughs> no, no, that, that's really, what do you got to hide? So often, we censor ourselves. You know, we don't acknowledge what we know about ourselves, or we want to appear, we want to, you know, sculpt it to be different for ourselves and for others. Man, when you work with somebody like that, you might should just let it all hang out, because it's all visible anyway. Okay, so, after a short time, I got to where I woke up before the four-hour bell. So then I made a vow, wake up, get up, meaning... Don't wait for the don't wait for the alarm. Just as soon as you wake up, get up. Don't even think about it. Just get up. <coughs> and for a number of years, I would I would lay down for about an hour to an hour and a half a night, for like three three and a half years. And it didn't get sick. It wasn't it wasn't that I wasn't tired some during the day. Sure, you get sleepy and whatnot, but didn't take a nap or anything. And the kind of sleep was. You know, when I decided I was going to lay down for sleep, I'd lay down, put one hand on my belly, one hand on my heart, and be instantly asleep, and the next moment be instantly awake. And an hour would have gone by. And just get up, just keep going. It's said, and I think it's true, that the reason we get tired is we think a lot. When you're practicing meditation and you're just observing things and you're not thinking, you're not solving problems, not making decisions. I didn't have to make any decisions. I didn't have to solve any problems. I didn't have to earn money. I didn't have to figure out how to spend money. I didn't have to worry about anything. My food is provided. And all I got to do is just watch the mind. 24-7. 365. Never anything asked me. I didn't have any job to do, no responsibilities. All I had to do was show up and give my report. Jesus, the mind stops thinking. I mean, it thinks, but you're not engaging the thoughts. They just go by. You're aware of them. They go by. So when the mind is not thinking, you don't get tired. And there were, there were others in the monastery. I mean, I had one, one of my teachers. He didn't sleep for two weeks. He just, just practiced very quantumous mind. Just things go by. No sleep. So, I mean, that, I didn't try to do this. I didn't have an aspiration. I'm only going to sleep an hour. That'd be used, that'd be stupid. But that's the way it ended up. So then, when I started teaching and 
you know, came back to the States and started teaching then. Slept more regular hours, like three or four. <laughs> but, you know, if I'm doing, if I'm doing, not doing physical work, then maybe three to four. When I'm doing teaching work here, five or six. If I'm doing physical work, then six or seven. Never seven. No, almost never seven. Maybe once in the last ten years, seven hours. But that's just that you know that's not something to aspire to. That's just who I am, and I'm. I have I have the I have the commitment to practice. Wake up, get up. So that's mine. No. I wouldn't. You know, different people have different metabolisms, different needs. Don't don't. Try to don't cut yourself short, but look at really what what's going on there. How much? How many of your hours are monkey mind? What we say, monkey mind, where you just kind of toss and turn, half in the dream, half out, and just kind of waiting for the alarm to go or the light to the sun to come out or something. Don't do that. Or I say, don't do that, but consider just sitting up, just sitting up in bed, even. Just to play on that, earlier in the retreat you said uh, at some point there's a lot of energy in being tired. Yeah. What did you What did you mean by that? Um, a lot of energy in being tired. Uh, what did I mean by that? <laughs> if you can take awareness into the it, when you're tired, when you feel tired, if you struggle against it, you'll exhaust yourself. But if you're when you're tired. Or when you feel, when the body feels tired or the mind feels tired, if you allow yourself to go into it with awareness, it's full of energy. And the energy of it will keep you awake. But you can't struggle against it and you can't hope for the kind of clarity that you'd like or even holding your posture like you'd like. It's almost like you just kind of, you get fully immersed, marinate yourself in sleepiness, but with awareness. There's a lot of energy. Energy is different than effort. And if you keep making an effort, then you'll be struggling with sleepiness. But if you stop making an effort to stay awake and just take your awareness into, as close as you can to the experience of sleepiness, there's lots going on in the body and mind. Lots. So that's what you're noticing. That's what keeps you alert. Just a quick... And you said when you would lay down, you'd put your hand on your heart and your stomach. Is that something you were taught, or is that something you found naturally? That came to me. I mean, that just was what... Well, you got to remember that the bed in the monastery was boards, and the pillow was a, the pillow was a split log. Okay? So that's... That's what you're starting with. So, you know, it's not like you can toss and turn and find a more comfortable position. It's like... <laughs> so, I mean... But, you know, that, that's, I, I don't want to make it more dramatic than it was. It's just that's the way it was. It's just like there wasn't any option. There wasn't any option. There was no other way. It was just it. You know? So it's like, okay. That's what you do. You get used to it. Actually, there was a, there was a thin mat, a woven bamboo reed mat about... An eighth of an inch stick on the boards. Oh, nice. <laughs> the life of luxury. <laughs> so, in our 
regular lives, work <laughs> or, or whatever, you know, we get involved in activities, yeah. and you know, especially say work, you know, where, where we have to put our minds into something, you know, pretty much 100%. Yeah. Or just if we're reading a book, and you know, we're involved in that. Yeah. How do we, while we're engaged in these things, try to keep our awareness present? Well. So the question is, how do we how do we stay aware of awareness while engaged in activity, whether it's reading or engaging in work, applying your mind to work? One of the things is, you know, when you're working, you know, you know when you're distracted. You know when you can't quite get fully into it. You know, and and half your mind is going off here and planning something or wondering about something or you know drafting a comment to somebody. It's like, okay, just notice that. Just notice that, oh, the mind's distracted. Or the mind is less than 100% on, to- on task. And then you can always ask yourself, and you, or if not just asking yourself, just you can always monitor what's your attitude of mind. Even as you're doing the work. You, you know, you've got a project, you open a file, you, know, you get Saturday night. What's your attitude of mind? Is it like, Oh no, I gotta get through this thing. Or is it, I gotta rush it, I gotta get this thing done now. Are you rushing? Are you confident about it? Are you lack, lacking confidence? Are you kind of like resentfully doing it? What's, what's the energy of it? So just checking your attitude of mind towards the work you have to do would be a good way, a good place to start. And, and, and not to judge it. You know, sometimes we do stuff, we have to do stuff that we don't want to really want to do. So you know you're doing it with a lot of resistance, a lot of frustration, a lot of, you know, I'll put up with it type of energy rather than, oh, I'm so excited to be doing this creative thing. Okay, just, just know that. Um, it's not going to be the kind of moment-to-moment recognition of objects and sensations in the body and micro... micro uh, I was going to say micro-dosing of thoughts, but micro-awareness of thoughts. It's not going to be that. But it can be a general presence of mind with, I'm on task, i got to draft this. Okay, okay do it. Stay, stay, stay present. And when the mind... God was reminding me that, you know, when he gets in a, in a stuck place, he always, he's always got to go get something to eat. And it's not really need something to eat. It's just like, I, I need to distract myself. You know, not, and, and so just to find your own ways of you know, trying to escape, you know, from, from something that's unpleasant, maybe problematic. The more you, the more you try to bring awareness to it, the more you'll see patterns, and then you'll start to work with them more, hopefully. Anything else? Um, so like everything we're talking about here is in terms of first noble truth suffering is to be realized or to to be investigated to be investigated and craving is to be abandoned craving is to be abandoned letting go letting go letting go okay and then the third noble truth is the end of suffering is to be realized by each one of us for ourselves oh okay and the path uh, practice the noble eightfold path is to be developed okay. by each one. 
Any more questions? Comments? Topics? Yeah. Um, I've been puzzling over this thing. Uh, uh, at work, I'm the expert, and I don't like it. Um, you know, about uh, one of my coworkers will say, my group is doing terribly. Will you go in and teach them some mindfulness? Or, uh, and and, and I realize that I've got two objections. One is that I, I really don't feel... The longer I do this, the less qualified I feel to teach anybody else about. Uh, and the other is that uh, just like uh, the mindfulness piece seems to me to be less important than the whole, that you got to buy the whole package, which includes the, uh, the SELA part and, the, uh, and the just like working on mindfulness can be, well, I don't think it's harmful, but it doesn't seem to be very be all that, like, it's not a cure-all. It's not a... Um, and I, any feedback you have on that, um, either one of those observations would be great. Well, I, I certainly understand the the more you do, the less you think you know piece. Because, well, the more we practice, the more we see really is how, how not mindful we are. You know, but that's the first... That's the first insight that we all have that comes from practicing mindfulness is, I'm not very mindful. And the more you practice, the more you see, wow, I'm really not very mindful. <laughs> you know, but, but that's all, I mean, relative. And then, um, you know, you're speaking about, you know, mindfulness has become, you know, it's just become ubiquitous cure-all or something. I don't know what, I, I mean, I, you know, when I started, you know, 45 years ago, it's like nobody had ever heard of the word mindfulness. It was like nothing. And now it's, you know, it's even hit the cover of Time, Newsweek, meaning it's really passe. But, uh, you know, and so you're right. And when, you know, it gets, you know, the teachings of mindfulness, you know, have been secularized and extracted from the context in which they're off. They were originally offered, and it's not to say that they're not valuable in a very secular, limited application for stress management or uh, relapse prevention of depression or treating addiction or stuff like that. It, it is. It can be really useful and helpful. But like you say, if you if you really understand what mindfulness is showing you, you realize there's a lot more to it than just uh, you know, finding your breath and kind of letting go of the stressful, the stressing conditions, or establishing a different relationship with stressing conditions. So, but not everybody makes that makes that connection, and and a lot of mindfulness teachers uh, aren't teaching it. You know, they're teaching mindfulness, but not the con- the larger context, because you know, in schools, kind of prohibited from it. But certainly the kids get a lot of benefit from just get their, you know, 20 minutes of mindfulness three times a week for six weeks and they're, they kind of get wake, woken up to them, their emotional life, their mind, you know, and what's going on. That's fantastic. They don't need all the teachings of uh, the whole Dharma. But they might later in life inquire, where's this all coming from and what else is involved and... You know, but given the context, they can't they can't be offered more than that. But you know, I don't bemoan the fact that people are 
taking mindfulness and doing all kinds of things with it. That's great. You know, I think it's a doorway for a lot of people just to, oh, <coughs> uh, a way of being more knowledgeable and at ease with their own inner life. And if they really get interested in that, there's more to explore. So, it's great. As long as there remains places like this, where you can have, where you can come and get the full, the full teachings of the Dharma, or where you can put mindfulness in the context of where it is in the Buddhist teachings. As long as there's places and teachers that offer that, and the opportunity to, um, I say, go deeper, but to explore the effect of mindfulness in your life, then that's good. Yeah. Yeah. Forgive me if you've said it already, but um, we talked a lot about this at the end of the last retreat, and I know we have on other retreats here. The the importance of simply noticing the moment in your life that mindfulness arises. Right. You know, just that, that that's a real important practice at home. Oh yeah, I think you know, I think that's a that's a good confirming recognition. It's like for for me, it was asking myself, what's my attitude of mind? That's what I got when I first practiced with Utejani. But you had, to already, you had to already be mindful at that moment to ask that question, right? I mean, you woke up at some point, some second before that, right? No, I think it kind of got planted as a little mantra in my mind. Okay. What's my attitude of mind? What's my attitude of mind? It's just, that's, that was what I was doing all the time. And then, that was in retreat in the monastery, okay. you know, with Utejaniya. And then when I left and, you know, on the plane and back to work and, you know, it just kept coming. It just kept, what's your attitude of mind? What's your attitude of mind? What's your, and it's like, it stops. You know, just to ask the question, is being aware? But it didn't come with intention. It was a habit. It got to be a kind of a mindless habit. But it was something I paid attention to. Okay. So building that habit, actually. Yeah, yeah. Mantras are good. They work that way. Yeah. Any last comments? Questions? Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.